All right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you all again this morning. Um, there's a couple new, or just one new handout um, that we'll be looking at today as a reference. Uh, but uh, we're going to look at um, Zechariah, begin Zechariah today. So Zechariah, uh, really just crazy book. Uh, it's a roller coaster. It's a, it's a wild, um, a wild ride. There's a lot going on, a lot of imagery, a lot of uh, apocalyptic imagery, um, a lot of uh, visions, and a lot of uh, um, prophecy and other uh, conversations that the prophet has with angels and with the Lord himself uh, that uh, we'll definitely spend time on and uh, hopefully can make sense of, uh, but always trying to find the the big picture in all of it. Uh, Since this is still an overview of the Book of the Twelve as a whole, we're hoping to uh, see how Zechariah fits into that larger story that we've been been telling. Um, But uh, glad to be here with you all again this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, uh, again, we thank you and give you praise that uh, you've uh, spoken to us uh, through uh, many times and in many ways through your servants, the prophets, and that you've committed those uh, words to writing. You've preserved those words by your uh, providence uh, over the centuries and over the years so that we can read uh, these words and we can benefit from them. And uh, Lord, we pray uh, as we study your word that uh, we would see uh, the Messiah uh, in these words, that we would see your Christ, uh, your Son, our Lord Jesus, that he would become clearer to us, uh, that we would love him more, that we would serve him uh, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I think last week, uh, you know, it was kind of... um, vague how we left it because I wasn't sure how much we were going to get through uh, Zechariah today. My goal for today, and if you want to turn uh, to Zechariah with me, uh, Zechariah easily divides into two halves. Chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 9 through 14. Um, And so if we could get through the first eight chapters today, that would be awesome. We'll see how we do. Uh, The first, the the main um, uh, content in those first eight chapters are Zechariah's uh, nighttime visions, as they're usually referred to. Um, that take up, takes up the bulk of the first part of Zechariah. So we could look at those, those visions together. Um, I don't know how much anyone or you all were able to read of that over this past week, but what I thought we would do is um, read through some of these together and take them one at a time. Uh, and then try to uh, figure out what they mean, uh, talk about what the truth and the message might be of these, and how they connect to one another, and then how that connects to the larger story of the Book of the Twelve, of Zechariah individually, but also in the larger story of the Book of the Twelve. All sound good? Awesome. Well, Zechariah uh, begins with a uh, superscription, as they all do, but this one uh, has some historical data in it. And so we have this uh, sheet here. This is what we had at the end of the um, those Haggai study questions from last week. But you'll notice there's a new column for Zechariah in here. 
and um, and uh, so we can we can put Zechariah into uh, the timeline that we have. Uh, so Zechariah begins in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. The word of the Lord came to the prophet, and so we see uh, he's he's within that same timeline of of Haggai. And so if you look kind of in the middle uh, in the Ezra column. Uh, Ezra chapter 5, verse uh, 1 and 2, that section uh, mentions both Haggai and Zechariah as uh, building up the returned community from exile to encourage them to do do what? What's their main thing that they're they're trying to do at this time? Yeah, they're rebuilding the temple. We remember last week, uh, Haggai was encouraging them because the work of the temple had stalled. And Haggai was asking them, uh, does it do you any good to have uh, be living in paneled houses of your own? Uh, that, that word paneling, that's, that's a reference to, to the temple. This is how the temple should be adorned. And yet it's not. It still lays in ruin, and you've been working on your own homes. You're not working on the, the house of the Lord. And so uh, in Ezra, Haggai and Zechariah are both mentioned as their contemporaries. They're both working and uh, prophesying to the people to encourage them to Continue the work of rebuilding the temple, and uh, and then we see yeah, just the second temple. Uh, yes, so the first temple destroyed 587, uh, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, and now they've returned. Uh, in uh, the 520s, they begin work on the temple, and around 516, that last line on this, that's usually the date that we approximate for the temple being finished. Um, and then that is what we consider the second temple period, which goes from this date in the 500 BC all the way to AD 70 when the temple is destroyed by the Romans. And during that time, uh, Herod will uh, he refurbishes the temple. Uh, remember this temple, uh, the people in Haggai's day they're they're uh, lamenting the fact that this temple wasn't measuring up to what it was before Solomon's temple that he built. Um, and Herod, he um, will take that, I guess, meager temple we could say that was rebuilt here, and he'll he'll make it grandiose. He'll he'll, re, he'll he'll refurbish it, expand it. What we would consider the the second temple that it as it existed during Jesus' day. That's what will be destroyed in eighty seventy by the Romans. So this period we have now is what we consider the second temple period. And so Zechariah, he's right in the midst of this. He's, he's prophesying to, um, to the people. So uh, let me read for us um, Zechariah, uh, the beginning of it here, through verse 6, and then we'll have a few comments about this first part, and then we'll jump into the visions. So eighth month, uh, second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. They did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, 
as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So the first, I guess, main theme we want to consider is this idea of returning to the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? And what it really means, what it looks like, looks like is, is repentance. This, this concept of returning or of turning. That's, that's, the, that's the meaning of, of repenting. Repenting uh, has that concept of turning away from something. And it also has that concept of uh, turning your nose away from something that is uh, smelly or something that's uh, detestable to you. That's, that's the concept of repentance. Uh, the same way if you catch a whiff of something that's rotten in the trash can, your immediate reaction is to, to turn away. It's like, oh, it's just it's so smelly, it's so bad. That's that concept of repentance, of, of turning from something to something else. And, and that makes sense when we, we consider what sin is and what repentance of sin is, is, is God, by his grace, makes sin something that's detestable to us, that, that we want to turn away from. And what do we turn away from and what do we turn to? We turn or return here to, to the Lord. And what I wanted to uh, read for us briefly is uh, from Calvin's commentary on Zechariah. Um, he talks about this idea of repentance and returning to the Lord. And one of the things that comes up, and this will actually come up in the sermon uh, later this morning uh, from Hosea chapter 10, where uh, Hosea the prophet commands God's people to uh, sow uh, righteousness so that they might reap steadfast love. And he's talking about this is what you are to do. And when you do this, you return to the Lord. He uses that same word. And the Lord will rain righteousness upon you. And what's interesting is there's, there's what God's people are called to do. They're called to be righteous. They're called to return to the Lord. But the Lord himself also is one who rains righteousness down upon them. And so one of the questions that comes up is, how, what, what's the relationship between our turning to the Lord and the Lord's turning to us? Uh, what's the relationship between repentance and faith? Uh, we're not going to be able to get into all, all of that now, but... but that's kind of the question is, is the Lord waiting for us to, to do before he acts? Or does he act in grace and mercy toward us? Um, so this is a, a question of, of uh, free will. It's a question of, of how, does, how uh, does, does God act sovereignly over our salvation? Um, or does he, does he wait for us out of our own ability to turn to him first? Does that make sense, the question that I'm asking here? Because it's, it's, it's really helpful. And let me read this for Calvin. He, he uh, addresses it so helpfully, this, this concept of returning to the Lord and the Lord then returning to us. He says, um, We must further bear in mind that according to the common usage of Scripture, whenever God exhorts us to repentance, and again, remember, repentance is that act of turning, he does not regard what our capacity is, but demands what is justly his right. So he's not 
giving us a command that we and our ability can keep, but he's given us a demand that is his righteous, uh, uh, that his justice rightly demands. He can rightly demand and uh, require of his people, his created, his creatures, to turn to him, even if they do not necessarily have the ability to do so. Uh, and then Calvin goes on, hence the papists, that being the, the Catholic Church at the time, the Roman Church, adopt what is absurd uh, when they deduce the power of free will from the command or exhortation to repent. Uh, God, they say, would not have commanded what is not in our power to do. It is a foolish and most uh, puerile mode of reasoning, absurd mode of reasoning. For if everything which God requires were in our power, the grace of the Holy Spirit would be superfluous. So again, we it is not in our ability to turn to the Lord. Apart from the Lord empowering us to do so through his spirit, which works faith in us uh, and enabling us to return to the Lord. Just want to see if I... Uh, And so let me read this last line here. But it is enough for us to know that God in exhorting us to repentance requires nothing but what nature dictates ought to be done by us. Since it is so, however short we are in the performance, it is not right to charge God with too much strictness that he demands what is beyond our power. So in his command for us to return to the Lord, it's always important for us to remember that we need to remain humble in that. Because apart from his grace, we could not hope to ever return to him. But the promise is still there. As we do seek him, as we do draw near to him, he likewise draws near draws near to us in his grace and in his mercy. And that's, that's what the prophet is exhorting the people to do. Return to the Lord. He will return to you. Now the other thing that's important in this context is remember, the people have returned from exile. So God has already delivered them back to the land of promise. And yet, he says that they still need to return to him. So there's, there's some sense in which this return from exile is incomplete. And that will help us understand the, the theological uh, message of the book of the Twelve, is that they were looking for this future restoration, remember. They're looking to be restored. We thought in, in time in that specific time period that the restoration from exile was what was being promised, what was being prophesied. But here we see that they've returned from exile and yet it's still incomplete. There's still turning that needs to be done. There's still a return to the Lord that needs to happen. There's still something that uh, has not taken place. And that's pointing ahead to this future restoration through the Messiah, through the Davidic figure, through the the Hosea 3, 4, and 5 uh, Davidic king. When they will again seek the Lord, that's the language used there. So does that all uh, make sense? We talked about just in that that concept of turning and returning to the Lord. Uh, what another fascinating thing just from this beginning uh, section in Zechariah. Um, he asks these rhetorical questions, chapter one, verse five. Your fathers, where are they? Or your ancestors? What happened to them? Are they still around? Are they still alive? 
The answer is no, no, they've, they've passed away. Well, what about the prophets even? God's chosen servants, where are they? Do the prophets live forever? Well, the answer is no. Well, which prophets is he referring to? So remember, we have these three post-exilic prophets, we call them, meaning they're, they, their ministry was after the exile, so post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We have all the other prophets that prophesied before or during like Ezekiel. Um, so who are the prophets that Zechariah is referring to? Well, it's all, all these prophets. But he's, he's saying, where are they? Well, they also, they've all uh, passed away as well. They've, they've all uh, died and uh, uh, passed away from the face of the earth. Do they live forever? No. But, verse 6, my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? The words that these prophets spoke through all the centuries, have their words not lasted longer than your ancestors who disobeyed their words? And now these very words, they're, they're challenging you and condemning you for your present disobedience. And so will you listen to these words of the prophets that your fathers did not listen to? And the, the hopeful thing that we see here is that this, uh, this uh, group of people that returned from exile, they did listen to the words. They did repent. They, they turned back to the Lord and said, As the Lord of hosts purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So yes, may the Lord deal with us as he desires to, and may we uh, uh, worship him rightly and, and serve him in covenant faithfulness as he requires. So that, that theme of, of proper repentance, we'll see that throughout, and we'll see that now as we get into these nighttime visions. Uh, I'm already behind, so I apologize. But as we get into these nighttime visions, we'll see that uh, a lot of these are contingent on the people's obedience, and which is why I wanted to talk about that relationship between our obedience and, and our righteousness before God. What relationship uh, does that have and uh, works and faith? And as long as we just keep that in mind that uh, our obedience is necessary, uh, faith without works is dead, as James would say. It is faith alone uh, that we're saved, but that faith is never alone. It's always expressed through obedience and good works. And so we'll see that we'll, we'll, you'll see that dynamic play out as we get through these uh, through these nighttime visions. Anyway, all right. So let's uh, jump into these. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, absolutely. The term Lord of Hosts. It looks like it showed up in Haggai. I don't remember if it was in any of the other early earlier ones we've studied. Mm-hmm. Can you give some insight in terms of the difference of that between that and Yahweh, capital L O R D. Is it ever? So, 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 Lord, when you see uh, the L O R D in all caps, that's uh, the Hebrew behind that is the the name Yahweh. That's um, given shorthand as Lord, capital L O R D. Sometimes uh, in the Bible, we'll see that it'll be Lord capital L lowercase and then the word God will be all caps and in that case the Hebrew behind that is um, Yahweh Adonai Adonai is a word in Hebrew that means Lord or Master so sometimes that title is given to the name Yahweh Master Yahweh as it were Um, and then Lord of Hosts is another very common title for the Lord that hosts is uh, 
the word is uh, the heavenly armies or God's ang- the host of angels or the host of God's armies. And so oftentimes, Lord of hosts is used in contexts of uh, God's um, mighty power in battle or in war. Um, and also um, in terms of his, his might or his authority. And that's uh, the case here in, in Zechariah. And you see, and it's good you pointed that out, the repetition He's referred to as Lord of hosts so much, or just Lord, that shows up so much in these first few verses. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, Yahweh who commands all angelic and heavenly beings, his vast army. He's calling you as the almighty judge of all the earth, heaven and earth, that you will return to me. And that same judge that was giving a promise that, and I'll return to you. So um, it, it helps to emphasize his, his message there. Thanks. All right. Will someone uh, read for us that first nighttime vision? And uh, these four horsemen. Um, and go ahead and read from verse 7 to verse 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. All right. So a lot of just a lot of stuff in there. Uh, So the the main content or the the main characters in this vision are these these four horsemen. Now, four horsemen. That's uh, those will show up in other places. Revelation. Uh, So we have a lot of um, similar language that will show up in these other apocalyptic uh, books of Scripture. Uh, So Zechariah is is a weird mix of of what we would consider more uh, standard or typical prophecy, prophetic literature. And it also has these these visions especially that feel a lot like um, some of the content in Ezekiel. And some of the content in Daniel, there's some connections we'll see with Daniel in the next vision, and also obviously uh, Revelation. So we see these uh, four horsemen, and what what are they uh, called to do? Patrol the earth. So they're going out. They're patrolling the earth. Uh, they're 
Another way to say that is is uh, they're they're walking about on upon the earth. And this is um, you know sometimes when we see patrol, what do we think of? We use the word patrol. Someone's patrolling around a neighborhood or police. Say, yeah, we think of like a police or a law enforcement. Um, that's some of the sense here, but also it's it's. Uh, they're walking about the land as a means of exercising their authority over the land. And specifically within the context of the covenant and covenant faithfulness. So, so in a sense, uh, these are um, patrolling the earth, walking about upon the earth, and uh, seeing what is, uh, what's the, uh, uh, the status of covenant faithfulness among the land right now, among the people. And what's the report that they give? So the land is at rest. And at first we think, well, rest, that's probably, sounds like a good thing. That would be at rest. But then how does the angel respond to this message? So in verse 11 they say, They patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Verse 12. How does the angel respond? How long will you have no mercy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this rest does not appear, based on the angel's response to it, does not appear to be a good thing or something that the angel was expecting to, to happen. And, and even if you back up here, what's fascinating about these nighttime visions is, so Jeremiah's, or sorry, uh, Zechariah is having these, these nighttime visions while he's laying in bed, wishing he'd fall asleep, but he can't because he's having all these wacky visions in his head. And he's talking to the Lord, but the Lord is talking to this angel. And then the angels, so there's these, like, uh, this, this intermediary. And the angel is the one who's, who's lamenting the fact that these four horsemen come back and declare that the earth is at rest. So what exactly does that mean? It's, it's hard to say. I think uh, the sense that we're getting here is that the people of Israel, remember from the book of Haggai, they were resting in their homes. They were resting from the work that they were supposed to be doing in rebuilding the temple. And they were not doing uh, or not uh, living out covenant faithfulness and obedience. They were neglecting those responsibilities. So I think that's what um, what's going on here. And then we see the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And so the Lord makes gives this promise in verse 14. He says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And he's angry with the nations that are at ease. And so that gives us another hint about uh, what this rest could mean as well. That these nations that have exiled Israel, exiled Jerusalem, they're resting in their accomplishments and in their, their destruction that they wreaked on God's people. And they, they're, they're at rest. Um, and God is going to uh, punish them for, for what has, has happened. Um, and then he says in verse 16, uh, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. So again, we have that language of return. Uh, so God's people are called to return to the Lord, and he will return to them. But we see that he, God also has returned, past tense, um, to Jerusalem with mercy. His house, the temple, be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem, and we'll see that come up um, later as well. 
But we see it, so we see this promise of restoration. Uh, we see that uh, the land is at ease, or the land is at rest. It doesn't seem like anything is, is bubbling up. There's, there's no action happening. It doesn't seem like this restoration is going to happen or to occur. And God's saying, this is, uh, just be patient. Just know that this is the calm before the storm. And I am going to return. And I am going to uh, restore everything uh, as I promised. So any, any thoughts about that first vision? Yeah. Um, so he often mentions the angel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Can you determine whether this is just a, a servant, just an angelic servant, or oftentimes the angel of the Lord is like a pre-incarnation of Christ sort mm-hmm. of? Can you yeah. the difference there? It's, uh, it's always... Um, it can be difficult to determine at times, but one of the keys is when we do see uh, the angel of the Lord uh, receive honor or worship, or we see people bow down to them, and that, and sometimes angels will say, "I'm a fellow servant of the Lord. Do not do this." Other times, we see this this angel of the Lord uh, receive that mercy, receive that glory. And I think that can be an interpretive key for us as, as to when it's referring to a pre-incarnate. Uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, as opposed to here which um, very much would be uh, just a messenger or servant of the Lord and again that that word angel means messenger means uh, someone who's bringing a message Um, and and that would be the case here yeah any other thoughts on uh, that first first of eight Visions. All right. Let's move on to number two. Um, it's a shorter one. So this is verses eighteen through uh, twenty. Uh, yeah, eighteen through twenty-one. Will someone read that for us? I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, "What are these?" And he said to me, "These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem." Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter. Alright, so straightforward? Alright, so that's the third one. No. <laughs> so what's going on here? Four horns. Four uh, horns. What is what's the so? Before we just jump into all of it, it's always helpful just to stick with um, exactly what's told to us and move on from there. So, how are the four horns defined? Um, the angel. Uh, so we see that Zechariah uh, he sees the four horns. He says to the angel, "Ask him what are these." And so, what does the angel say they are? Or the scattered Judah and Israel. Yeah, so these are the these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So that represents both of the two kingdoms. Um, so who are the people or entities or nations that scattered them into exile? Assyria and Babylon. Exactly. So Assyria in the north, Babylon in uh, the southern kingdom. 
um, those are the nations that, that exile them. <clears throat> so why, so then, then we ask the question, why four? Or who exactly do these horns refer to? Horn is very common, uh, can refer to uh, kings uh, or leaders. Uh, it can also refer to nations. Um, so it could be um, four of the kings during the time of uh, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylon Empire. Uh, we also uh, know in the book of Daniel, a very similar book in this language, he has the prophecies about these four kingdoms. If you remember at the end of Daniel, uh, I think um, chapter 9 is when he begins his messianic, a lot of his messianic prophecies. This is after those stories of faithfulness. Then he gets into his, uh, Daniel begins his, this prophetic and uh, apocalyptic kind of language. So he, he identifies four nations. And those are commonly understood as uh, Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire that uh, came after them. That's the time period we're in right now. And then after them, the uh, Greece. And then following Greece is the Roman Empire. That's the traditional understanding of, of those four kingdoms in Daniel. Could Zechariah be anticipating or prophesying something similar to that? Uh, maybe. We don't know. I think what we should say, um, or at least what I think, and again, this could could change too. But it's it's based on this text here. We have that these these horns, these four horns, they're the ones that have scattered Israel uh, and Judah, and that was a very significant, obviously, event in the time of God's people. And now they've returned from exile, and they're wondering. Why did you let this happen? Lord, why did this happen? And do you care? Do you, do you understand our hurt? Do you understand our pain? And that's why we get the second part of this, um, this vision. We have the four craftsmen. And what are they coming to do? So these horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. It's a way of saying uh, everyone was just cast down and completely dejected and destroyed. Uh, these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So again, we have this message of, of, uh, of judgment against evil. Which remember, that was uh, big in the books of Nahum and Habakkuk, that God would judge Assyria and judge Babylon respectively. God does care about the problem of evil. He is doing something about it. Um, who are the craftsmen then? Uh, I don't know. So, sorry. But, uh, but the point is, uh, is restoration and judgment. And this, that word for craftsmen, it, it can refer to what we would understand as like a blacksmith, uh, but also has a connotation of, of, uh, of uh, a warrior. And you think of someone, a craftsman crafting tools of war, or someone that is able to uh, to, to wage war uh, successfully, and that's, that's the vision here of, of what's going to, to occur. Uh, God is going to judge the wickedness. There will be deliverance. That's the message. There any, yeah? Is there something significant about four? Um, we've seen that number show up in the right. 12 previously. Uh, Amos is uh, his for three uh, uh, um, 
acts of iniquity, or what's the word he uses there, for three transgressions of so-and-so and for four. Uh, so it, it can connote a, a, um, complete, a completeness or, or totality. Um, and I think that is maybe the, the best understanding of, of four here. So just as exacting and complete as the judgment of sin is, so will God's deliverance be. He's not going to leave any part of his people still wanting or lacking anything, but he gives everything to them, everything. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. Shall we continue? All right. This one's a little longer. Uh, So will someone read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13? I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hands over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall shall join them, or excuse me, shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Awesome. So does anyone want to try and put that into their own words, <laughs> briefly? Or just summarize what, what's going to happen? What's this prophecy all about? I mean, yeah, verse 5, a wall of fire. I never made that connection. Yeah, no, he's a, I mean, yeah, that's a firewall. I love that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so we see this, This uh, he's going to 
uh, restore. So again, that's the this main theme in, in so many words. God is going to restore them. He's going to be in their midst. We talked about God's dwelling place last time and uh, how the temple was God's dwelling place, but now God's dwelling place is through the temple of Jesus Christ. And we're being built up into the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, himself being the cornerstone. And so again, we have this this promise that God is going to dwell in their midst. Uh, Same in in Revelation 21, uh, that uh, there will be no temple in the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem because God himself will be their temple. And so we see the same thing uh, that... um, they're going to be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and the livestock in it. And so what's significant about that, so, so again, the vision is this, this large measuring line this, this, uh, that's coming out to, to measure this city of Jerusalem. And uh, in, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, as the people are returning, uh, we see this, uh, again, this, this um, uh, discouraging scene where uh, they don't even have enough people to inhabit the cities that they're returning to like they're they're underpopulated they don't have the livestock that they need to even sustain uh, villages and communities um, food shortages as it were the grocery store uh, shelves are not stocked properly they don't have the means of 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 uh, inhabiting cities and let alone defending it uh, so they, they need uh, walls uh, that's why the book of Nehemiah is all about building rebuilding the walls of of Jerusalem, but the vision here is the exact opposite: is that there will be such a multitude of people, and they'll have so much livestock, such a surplus of everything that they need and can want, that you wouldn't even be able to contain it within the walls. And so God is, is measuring uh, new walls, as it were, and these uh, these will be walls of fire all around, um, and God will be the glory in their midst. And so when you think of we think of fire as a reference to God's presence. We can think of the uh, pillar of fire uh, that led them in the wilderness. We also know that, or the burning bush uh, appearing uh, to Moses. Um, but we also know that fire is, is a purifying agent. Um, it's a, the refining fire. And so when we see this, this city that is uh, enclosed with a firewall, what that means is we know that nothing impure is going to come in. And everything that's inside the fire has passed through the refining fire. So there's going to be purity in this new city. And just as we all will pass through the refining fire as it were, God will make us holy as he is holy. And so again, we're, we're called to be holy. That's what we're supposed to do. And our actions do matter. But God is also the one who is refining us, who's working in us with his spirit. And so we see that happening here. And then we have this long promise as well of, of restoration. Um, the land of the north, uh, that was uh, um, typically, uh, or it's a, a symbol of um, the symbolic enemy of God's people. Uh, so the, the, the anticipated enemy in, in Ezekiel, uh, Gog, Magog, that's the enemy in the north, uh, this, this prototypical uh, enemy or adversary of the Lord. Uh, it was also the, the path of, of exile and of judgment. Um, Israel is, is here. 
and then um, Babylon's over here in the east, but uh, this is all wilderness. They would take this this route. They'd come down from the north, invading Israel. So this this northern route, uh, looking to the north, is is uh, destruction comes from the north. Is is the is the point here? Um, so they're fleeing from the north. Uh, But God is going to, and I think, is, I can't remember if this is this one or another one uh, later on. Uh, one of the later maybe prophecies is God talks about that he's going to rest in the land of the north as an act of his sovereignty and his his destruction of all wickedness. He's, he's resting there. I think that will come up uh, later. Um, Notice in verse 11, we have that promise again of many nations. That's been a theme in the 12. That many nations will also dwell. This is not uh, just the nation of Israel, but all of God's people, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel chapter uh, chapter 2. And the Lord uh, Judah will be his inheritance and his portion forever, and God will dwell in the midst. Any question on, on that one? Is it a possibility that that is a real future view towards heaven, our final home? You know, and the firewall around being the fire of judgment. You know, and and God is in our midst, and all nations are there. Like, we will see a wall of fire with our eyes and when the new heavens and new earth? I don't know, but that Uh, will certainly be a protection to keep us from all evil. Absolutely, yeah. No, I I don't know. I don't know what we're going to see with our glorified eyes (laughs) when we are with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, But certainly this is a, uh, um, whether literal or figurative, that is going to be the case, that no impure thing will ever enter into God's presence, but he'll, he'll make all things new. And all that are there will have fled from Babylon. right and sought refuge with the Lord I like the fact that God says three times in this vision that he will be in the midst of them that is just I mean when God repeats himself it must be for him (laughs) it's an important concept in him he's saying this over and over again in the other prophets and it's beautiful that God would want to be with his people like that Yeah. Yep. Amen. And notice verse 13 there. Be silent. So remember, that was a key. Remember which prophet? Zephaniah. Yeah, Zephaniah. So Zephaniah says, All flesh will be silent before the Lord on the day of the Lord, that day of judgment. That's going to be a silence as shock and awe and terror. But at the end of Zephaniah, that promise and prophecy of, of restoration, God says that he'll make all his people quiet by his love by his mercy and here again we see that um, be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling so God is God is is acting he is he's been roused not that he was ever asleep but this this concept this this uh, fact that uh, uh, he is on the move as it were all right let's see if we can 
knock out one more. <laughs> All right, so uh, the next one, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 10. So all of chapter 3. Someone read that for us. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's amazing. You know, uh, I mentioned stars before as an analogy, illustration of what's going on in the Book of the Twelve. All those Marvel movies, all these pop cultural movies, uh, they make new ones and they contain callbacks and they contain uh, Easter eggs and references to previous movies. Uh, every Star Wars movie, someone says, I have a bad feeling about this, in every single one. Um, they, they all have these references, they all have these callbacks. The book of Zechariah is, is like that in a lot of ways. Even in this one, there's so many callbacks to, uh, to uh, words and references and uh, uh, things that we've already seen. Um, so one of them obviously a big one is this branch so this guy whose name is the branch um, and so uh, do I have the um, so we've seen that in uh, uh, Micah 4.4 um, which is also a reference to Jeremiah 23 and uh, Jeremiah 33 talks about this this person, the branch, who is God's servant, who himself is pointing to um, this Davidic king that's coming. Um, and remember, uh, all throughout the Book of the Twelve, there's been this promise of this restored um, booth of David, restored branch of David, Amos uh, chapter 9, that of Amos talks about this restoration of of the lineage of David. And so remember um, that uh, in, in Haggai, one of the main characters is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is from the line of David. We know that from, from the genealogies. And so, so he's an important figure. What other important figures specifically is, is in this 
passage? Who's who's the guy here? Um, it's it's a Joshua, and Joshua is the high priest. So we have Zerubbabel who uh, he's serving as governor. So he's not uh, um, anointed as king, as it were, but he's still serving in a in a kingly role, and he's from the Davidic kingly line. And now we have Joshua, the high priest. Uh, whose name uh, means uh, salvation or deliverer, one who saves. That's, that's the name of Jesus. Uh, that's the same name uh, from the same Hebrew, Hebrew root uh, word. Um, so we have this very important uh, figure. Um, and uh, so we have this, this prophecy here. Um, we have Satan standing at the right hand uh, Next to Joshua, accusing Joshua, who's standing in as as the people, uh, or for the people. That's what the high priest did: is they stood in on behalf of the people they represented. And we have Satan, whose name means the adversary. Uh, so he's the one who accuses. He's the one who is the adversary of of uh, of God, obviously, and of of his people. Um. And we don't um, we don't uh, know what Satan is is doing, other than he is he's the adversary. So he's 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 uh, accusing him of the opposite of, of what's true. And so we see that Yahweh uh, responds to the adversary, responds to Satan, and rebukes him in verse three or sorry verse two. And says, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand? Plucked from the fire. In other words, a brand or a burning stick. And so the analogy there is uh, God is saying, yes, they uh, they have sinned and they have been uh, uh, judged for that sin, the fire analogy, but I've pulled them out of the fire. So they're, they're a brand that's been pulled out of the fire, as it were. And, uh, and that's... Um, in other words, that, that judgment has already been rendered. And so I think it's very appropriate for us today when we consider um, when our own flesh and the devil and the world accuses us of our wickedness and our sin. We can say, yes, that is true in one sense. Your accusations are correct in one sense. I am a sinner in need of grace, but I have received grace. And I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God. I My... my the penalty, the payment for my sin has been paid. I've been plucked out of the fire, as it were, and I'm, I'm held by the hand of the Lord. Um, and then we move on and we see this uh, figure, Joshua, whose name means salvation or deliverer. He's standing before the angel. He's clothed with filthy garments. And that's a polite way of translating that. Uh, that word filth, uh, literally filth uh, or human excrement or um, whatever uh, however you want to to render that but literally uh, could not have been clothed uh, and anything worse is is the point here um, and he is uh, reclothed as it were he's told to remove the filthy garments from him and in doing so 
he's pronounced and says, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I'll clothe you with pure vestments, with pure clothes. And he receives this clean turban on his head, um, and he's clothed with these clean garments. And so we have this picture of the forgiveness of sin and the, the, the clearing away of, of iniquity and the cleansing of impurity. Uh, but then, and then we see in verse seven, uh, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you the right to access among those who are standing here. Uh, and so we have again this this um, salvation depicted, and then new obedience that follows from that. Uh, so again, we see this this dynamic of faith and works at play. Uh, and then we get to the end here. Um, he, God is going to bring His servant, the branch. Again, that 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 prophecy, that vision of the Messiah. Um, this is the one that uh, Joshua represents. Uh, this and this vision of Joshua is pointing it forward to this this branch uh, who will come, and he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Um, and in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And that's another callback. Um, you guys remember when we talked about that uh, language of vine and fig tree? I think that was a while ago. So if you jump back to... Um, Micah chapter 4 verse 4 So there's this promise in Micah that the Lord will uh, restore in the latter days and uh, and in verse 4 they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So this vine and fig tree language that points back to the reign of Solomon. First Kings chapter four, verse twenty talking about Solomon's wealth and his status in the kingdom, how great it was under Solomon. And it's described like this, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So we have this, <laughs> this little vine and fig tree reference that shows up throughout the prophets as a description and a symbol of what the future life of safety and dwelling will be with, like when this branch, this Messiah figure comes and restores and makes all things new. So there's just so much there packed into all these little things. Um, and we got through about half of what I hoped to do. So we'll pick up with that next time. Um, if you would, just read through the rest of the four visions we have left. Uh, and then I think... We'll, we'll just pick up right where we left off next time and, and see how far we get. And uh, we'll keep going from there. But thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you.